It is, as always, my pleasure to be with all of you. I hope that <coughs> we are all excited to delve into God's Word as our first uh, slide this morning <coughs> excuse me, indicates. We continue our lessons from the divided kingdom in First and Second Kings and some of uh, Chronicles. But our lesson this morning is in Second Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 25. So if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, go ahead and uh, do so. By the way, 1 through 25 is the entirety of chapter 2 of Second Kings. And as you can also see from this uh, first slide, our lesson this morning is different prophets, same eternal God. Different prophets. Prophets, same eternal God. As I like to do, I provide a lesson frame, and I hope that as I frame our lessons, it's helpful for all of us to understand what the central themes are that will pop out throughout our lesson. There are two that I believe will pop out, two central themes that I believe will pop out this morning throughout our lesson. The first is provision. The second is faithfulness. Let me talk about provision uh, very quickly by way of a prophet in this case. We will see this morning how God provides for both Elijah and his own people in the transition from Elijah to Elisha. As God prepares to take Elijah Home, leaving Israel without a central prophet is not an option because it would send Israel into chaos and utter despair. It would also leave the school of prophets, which we'll talk a little bit about today, uh, without a leader and Israel would be left without an official figurehead to serve as God's mouthpiece. And so, therefore, this transition that we will study this morning is essential. In so doing, as God provides this transition, as he provides one prophet for the other, we see God's provision. We see the reality and the truth that God cares for the details of his people. And he providentially provides for every need of those that are his. Our second frame this morning is faithfulness. It is a familiar frame, no doubt. It is throughout all of our lessons. And in this case, I'd ask that you turn just a few pages back from 2 Kings chapter 2 and read with me 1 Kings chapter 19, 15 through 18. 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse, in verse 15, the Lord said to him, go Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazel, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, 
all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. In addition to God's provision as a central theme in our lesson, his faithfulness really pops out this morning as an additional central theme. Specifically, his faithfulness to his own word. And it is essential that we understand this truth. As we read 1 Kings chapter 19, we're reminded of God's instructions to Elijah for Aram, for Israel, and for himself. As we study God's word this morning, we realize that the instructions that pertained to himself, those of selecting Elisha to continue in Elijah's stead, come to fruition in our lesson. Therefore, we are once again confronted with the fact that God is true to his word. And we can count on that entirely. And that earthly circumstances, while life-altering for creation, never hamper or alter the Creator's plans and purposes. That is an awesome truth. As surely as God instructed Elijah to select Elisha for the office of prophet in his stead, that very event occurs before us this morning as we read God's word. Therefore, this lesson's central themes are one, that God faithfully provides, and two, that God's faithfulness is evident through his provision. That's the lesson frame by way of introduction. I'd like to give you three points that will help lay our foundation this morning. The first is a brief review. How many of us were here last week? Last weekend, I should say. Yeah, a good amount. But for those that, that were not able to be here, maybe this is your first Sunday, let me briefly remind us of where we were last week as we enter our lesson this morning. We studied last week 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, all the way through 2 Kings chapter 1, ending in verse 18. Wes was with us, and he asked the all-important question. If you were here, you remember is there a God in Israel? And by the way, the, the, the resounding answer to that question is, yes, there is a God in Israel. But Ahaziah, or Ahaziah, excuse me, succeeds his father Ahab as king. Ahaziah proves to be even worse than Ahab, which is really, really saying something. You've got to really try to be worse than Ahab. But his son is able to manage it. Ahaziah not only proves to be worse than his uh, father, but because he worships Baal entirely, but he suffers a fall, we're told. And the fall is so bad that he becomes very, very ill. And instead of, of seeking whether he will recover from this fall, from Yahweh, from his God, from the God of Israel, he sends messengers to ask Baal if he will recover. This enrages God, and rightfully so, and he sends Elijah to Ahaziah, and he asks the question, is, is there no God in Israel? Is that why you're going to Baal? And thus, thus the question. 
uh, Ahaziah is, is ultimately confronted about his sin and he dies. And because Ahaziah had no son, we're told that Jehoram becomes king over Israel. That, that kind of sets the brief review for us. By way of introduction, the second quick point that I wanted to give for us is the external and internal wars, or excuse me, woes that occur as we jump into chapter 2. Externally, it's important for us to understand this morning that there's a few things going on that, that are really woeful for Israel and Judah. The writer of First and Second Kings really focuses on Israel primarily, but a lot of this stuff is going on in Israel and Judah. But externally, there's, there's Moab and, and their rebellion against Israel. In fact, that's the reason why Ahaziah falls and becomes very ill because he's dealing with this rebellion. And this rebellion from Moab really has the potential of a, of a negative uprising from Moab against Israel. There's the threat of war. And so there's a lot of tension going on. In addition to Moab's rebellion, there's an ongoing conflict with Syria. There's, there's fighting with Syria. And then there's minor conflicts with Assyria. So there's, there's some external woes that are going on. Internally, what's going on as we jump into chapter 2 of 2 Kings? Well, internally, the picture isn't any better. There's conflict. There's conflict between prophets and king. And that's primarily because of the monarchy's uh, religious policies, because they, they have driven Israel to worship Baal. They have instituted houses of worship for Baal. And so there's a lot of conflict between prophets and the monarchy. There's also a lack of military and general support for the monarchy that is starting to, to uprise. We're going to read a lot about this as we go through Second Kings. But this is the internal woes, or these are the internal woes that are occurring. So there's external woes, there's, there's internal woes. What are the results here? Well, they're not good. That's the reality of Israel and Judah. The results are not good at this point. And that's pretty obvious, given so much external and internal strife. Tensions are high. Instability and uncertainty really reign and dominate that time. There's a general disregard for God and his word throughout Israel and Judah. Given these circumstances, it's difficult to overstate the, the ministry of the prophets. It's difficult to, to overestimate this morning how important the prophets were to Israel and Judah at this time. It was essential that the prophets continue to stand in the gap for both Israel and Judah and oppose idolatry, confront sin, and call God's people back to God. No matter the circumstances around them, no matter their individual or collective trials, the prophets had to continue proclaiming Yahweh's truth. Our lesson this morning 
will give us one of these such trials. God's faithfulness we will see through this trial, the transition from one prophet to the next, from one man of God to the next man of God. But understand that if this transition that we will read about this morning fails, if it doesn't go smoothly, if it goes poorly, the situation is so delicate that even a poor transition from Elijah to Elisha can tip the balance of Israel to the point where everything goes awry. To the point where there is no more, no one else that believes in God. So the importance of this transition is important. And that's what we jump into this morning. Hopefully this sets a good basis for us and it provides a context that we can work with as we go through our lesson this morning. And I'm sorry, I forgot to give you the uh, third uh, point there. Anyway, we move on. Our first point, Elijah's ascension. Elijah's ascension. Our lesson this morning can be broken up into two main parts. The first part begins with Elijah's ascension, verses 1 through 12. The first subpoint in our Lesson this morning, his starting point, beginning in verse one, read verse one. Once again, second Kings chapter two, we are reading verse one. And it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. So what, what is Elijah's starting point in his ascension? It is Gilgal. It's interesting here. There are two Gilgals that that are referred to in Scripture. Now, I don't have a map for you this morning, but there is one Gilgal that a majority of scholars agree is what is in reference here. It is between the Jordan River and Jericho. And then there's another Gilgal that's about 11 kilometers. And I'm American, so. I'm just saying kilometers because that's what the commentary said, and I didn't have a chance to make the transition. So if you know what 11 kilometers is in miles, let me know. But it's about 11 kilometers from Bethel to the north. Some people believe that that, Beth, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> that that Gilgal is what is referred to here, but that's, that's a longer way. It wouldn't make sense. And just given the journey that we're going to see here in a little bit, the Gilgal that is in between the Jordan River and Jericho is very likely what is referred to here. The other thing that I want you to notice about Elijah's starting point is that he's not alone. This starting point includes Elisha. He doesn't start alone. He's got his trainee with him. Elisha is by his side as Elijah's ascension starts. And really, we can say that the, the, the starting point here as we read verse 1 is really leading to a very, very quick final point. Elijah, make no doubt about this as we read these verses this morning, is experiencing his final earthly moments. Think about that. Think about being granted the opportunity to experience your final earthly moments and knowing that that is 
the case. We are given a first glimpse here in verse 1 into how Elijah is going home. We're told by a whirlwind to heaven. By a whirlwind to heaven. If you had a chance to, to know these were your last final moments on earth, how many of us would take that opportunity? Yeah. I didn't think so. I didn't think so. Nobody raised their hand. It is amazing. It is amazing how we view our finality, how we view those final moments. And I will say just as an aside here, the graciousness of God should be appreciated that we don't get to know how we're going to die, whether it is sudden or whether it is drawn out. Understand that there is a graciousness of God in not allowing us to know because it would be agonizing. But Elijah is not agonizing per se. I do have to say, just as a funny thought, if I'm going to heaven, if I'm going home, what an awesome way to get there. A whirlwind. I'd prefer a whirlwind to a car accident. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'd prefer a whirlwind to any sickness you can offer. I would prefer a whirlwind to just about anything except God extending his enormous hand out so that I can walk onto it and then I can just go. I don't know about you, but that is an awesome way to get to heaven. Point, uh, sub point number two his journey, and his requests. Read with me verses 2 through 8. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. By the way, there's going to be quite a bit of repetition in these verses, just to forewarn you. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Verse 5, and the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Verse 7, now 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters and they were divided here and there so the two of them crossed over on dry ground. I'd like to deal with uh, two main things here. First, the journey. 
And, and as we look at the journey and as we start to analyze the journey after having read verses 2 through 8, immediately we notice that it takes place in three central instances. Elijah's journey takes place or occurs in three central instances. It goes from Gilgal to Bethel, verse 2. It goes from Bethel to Jericho, verse 4. And it goes from Jericho to the Jordan River in verse 6. And it is astonishing, perhaps you picked up on this as we were reading these verses, the parallels that exist between his journey and the entry of Israel into the promised land. I was amazed to find out during my personal study that, that this route, or for those of you who insist on speaking weirdly, this route, <laughs> that Elijah takes is the exact route that is taken by Joshua as he enters the promised land. He goes from Gilgal to Bethel, from Bethel to Jericho, from Jericho to the Jordan. It was amazing. And then there's the splitting of the Jordan River, which, which conjures up images of Moses splitting the Red Sea during that time. There's also the, the, the image or the idea of Joshua's succession of Moses and, and this succession that we are reading about this morning have an equality with that succession, the, the succession of Elisha for Elijah. And it's interesting that the parallels that we see here between this succession and the entry of the Israelites into the promised land actually place Elijah on the same level as Moses. And if you fast forward, follow me here just a little bit, if you fast forward into the New Testament and you have Christ calls a couple of his disciples and transfigures before them, who is it that is found with Jesus if not Moses? representing the law, and Elijah representing the prophets. You'd have a hard time, just based on this simple detail, convincing me that God is not sovereign in every iota of history, that his hand isn't covering everything from beginning to end, and that history is not, in fact, his story. You'd have a really hard time convincing me of that because of details like this. But, but that's the journey. It takes place in three central instances and it has magnificent parallels to the entry of the Israelites into the promised land and its significance there. Let's look at the request because it's very similar to the journey. Like the journey, the request that we read about in these verses occurs in three separate requests. And like the journey, the requests are found in the same verses, verses 2, 4, and 6. 
There's three requests. What are they? Requests. The first request is Elijah asks Elisha to remain at Gilgal. The second request is Elijah asking Elisha to remain at Bethel. And the third request is Elijah asking Elisha to remain at Jericho. And I think that as we read this, we all have to admit, or maybe you wouldn't have to admit, but I'll admit to you that I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what gives? Why are you asking him to stay? You don't like him all of a sudden? Did he say something? Talk about your mama? What happened? <laughs> Nothing like that. But it is peculiar, these requests on Elijah's behalf. They read almost as if Elisha is a nuisance now to Elijah. Now, there is some disagreement amongst scholars about the meaning of these requests. But I think for the purposes of our lesson this morning, it's important for us to frame these questions in the context of a relationship between a father and a son. And you guys know there's no better way, no easier way, to get Edwin Galindo crying than to start talking about a relationship between a father and a son. So I'll try not to cry. That's why I'm telling you this. But I give you no promises. It is a sweet relationship here. And I think it's necessary to frame this relationship between Elijah and Elisha as though a father is looking at a son. Consider the following. Both know what is about to occur. Both are under no pretenses that Elijah is in his last moments on earth. That's no secret to either of them. Like a caring father then, Elijah is looking to shield his son. And that, that makes a lot of sense. If, if, if I, I was thinking, obviously I have three boys and and if I, I did have, I would say, the displeasure of knowing that I'm living my final moments on earth, I, I wouldn't want them near me. Does that make sense? I wouldn't call them and say, hey, come check out what's about to happen. No matter how I'm going. No matter how I'm going. The reality is that even when we have loved ones, when we have parents, when we have fathers, that know the Lord, that love the Lord, and they depart to heaven. We have that security. We have that knowledge that they have gone home now. And in that sense, we have an internal joy. But that doesn't take away from the external reality of the loss. And there is still grief that is felt to differing degrees for us. And so I think both know, and Elijah is going through these cities, and he's saying, look, stay, stay here. Stay here. He's, 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 he, he doesn't want Elisha to go through the pain that he knows he's about to go through. Stay with me. It'll make a little more sense. The case that I'm trying to make to you will make a little more sense as we read on in our lesson. But I do think that Elijah is like a father who is looking out for his son. And you have to love Elisha because 
He's like the son who just doesn't care, right? He's, he's, he's being told, look, stay here. And he's the son who's clinging on to his father. And there's a very beautiful picture there in that father-son relationship of what we are to do with our heavenly father. Not disobey, understand, and God will spare us when he has to spare us, but that picture of clinging on to our heavenly father. As Elisha clung to Elijah, it is my prayer that, that I can cling to my heavenly father, that we can cling to our heavenly father to the end. Such a beautiful, beautiful picture. Before we move on, because I know we talked about uh, the sons of the prophets, and I just want to make a note. We read quite a bit about the sons of the prophets. They ask Elisha twice. Hey, do you know that he's leaving today? <laughs> I, I didn't miss that. I just wanted to give you a quick note on the sons of the prophets. There's not a lot of information that comes up about this group. But the little that we know, it, it seems that when you read the sons of the prophets, whether it's in first Kings or second Kings, it, it's really a school of prophets that was established by many believe Elijah. Once the, the sentiment around the prophets had bettered within Israel, he established a, a school of prophets and then delegated them to differing cities as we read. And in those cities, they were to serve the people and prophesy in their cities. And in part, in part at least, Elijah's journey that we read in verses 2 through 8 is, is a sort of goodbye tour to, to see his prophets one last time it, it, it did have the central purpose with elisha and that transition but but he was going from city to city to to say goodbye one last time to these prophets so i didn't i didn't want to miss the the fact that we read over the prophets and and not comment on them at all but this leads us to our third and final subpoint uh, of our first <coughs> point this morning which is his offer and ascension. 9 through 12. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. And they were going along and talking. Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Let's look at the offer just quickly here. Notice that Elijah's offer to Elisha is posed in the form of a question. And it comes on the heels of Elijah's last miracle in verse 8. He, he parts with his mantle the, the waters of 
the Jordan River, like Moses parted the waters of the Red Sea. That is, in fact, his last miracle. And so on the heels of this last miracle, this offer comes to Elisha. And it's also interesting that we read here in these verses 9 through 12 that this offer is received with an impossible request. It's received with an impossible request. Elijah's offer, if you're thinking this morning, is is very similar to another offer in Scripture. It's very similar to God's offer to Solomon. And essentially, in today's vernacular, it's, what do you want? Tell me what you want. I'll tell you what, there is no greater way to find out what's in a man's heart than to pose that question. What do you want? So as we read this, I hope that that question resounds within us. Because our response to that question will reveal our hearts just like Elisha's response revealed his heart, not only to Elijah, but to God himself. Like Solomon's response revealed his heart to his God. What's important to us? What do we really covet? If given... All of the opportunity in the world, God comes and asks, what do you want? What are we saying? What do we respond with? Keep that in mind as we go through it, go through this. Elijah's request once again sheds light on Elisha's heart. Elisha's request is often misunderstood. I grew up in the Assemblies of God denomination, Pentecostal. I know, shocker, shocker. You can't really tell, but I did. And I can't tell you how many times on any given Sunday or any given Friday or any other day that we decided to have service because we decided randomly to have a bunch of services, this very part of Scripture was misquoted. And it had everything to do with a mystical power of God and anointing that that we should be coveting, a double portion of anointing, the preacher would say. For that reason and others, this part of Scripture is one of the most misunderstood parts of Scripture in all of Scripture. This is not a selfish request. Elisha is not asking here, let me be greater than you, Elijah. He's not asking, hey, you've had your time in the spotlight. Now give me a double portion so I can have double the time in the spotlight. That's not the request. Instead, you don't have to turn there, but jot this down in your notes if you're taking them. Deuteronomy 21, 17. Deuteronomy 21, 17 is where this request is rooted. And in Deuteronomy 21, the law is laid out for what the portion will be for the eldest son in terms of inheritance. And as Deuteronomy makes clear 
the eldest son receives a double portion of his father's inheritance. And that is the basis for this request. But it wasn't a glamorous thing. It wasn't a power trip that he was on. That's not the request. You see, in Israel's time, the oldest son received the double portion of his father's inheritance because it was his responsibility to carry on his father's name. It was his responsibility to carry on his father's work. And so as we understand that, we understand that Elijah is actually saying, I want to carry on your ministry. Elijah. I want to carry on the name that God has given you. That's where his heart is. Not in a double portion of anointing. Not so people can notice him. No, in the humblest of ways, he wants to carry on his spiritual father's ministry. And so he asks, he asks for a double portion to carry on that ministry, to have the spiritual strength necessary to do so. And in so doing, we catch a glimpse of the humility within this man's heart. And I do hope, I do hope that that same humility would exist in us this very morning. That we would respond similarly if given that question. If presented with that question, what do you want? That our hearts would desire that which will endure. That which will leave a spiritual legacy. For those who come after us. Not money. Or fame. Or recognition. Things that pass by. But instead. A permanent spiritual legacy. Like Elijah had left for Elisha. Well, that's the offer. Let's look at the ascension here very quickly. That the ascension is supernatural is, I think, undoubted, right? There's no way for us to doubt that the ascension that we read of here is not supernatural. It has three supernatural components. The first is there's a chariot of fire. I mean, we could just stop there, right? That's supernatural. But in addition to that, if you guys don't think that God is awesome, look at what he does here. To the chariot of fire, he adds horses of fire. Okay? And to that chariot with the horses that are on fire, there's a whirlwind in this ascension. Now, I want to be very clear here. The chariot and the horses that are on fire those are not the ones that actually take Elijah up to heaven. Okay? Let's be, let's be strict here. Let's be exact with what we read. Just a basic reading of it says that that is what served to separate Elijah from Elisha. And this is fascinating because what was the condition that Elijah gives Elisha for that double portion to be received? If you see me. It is, it, it, it is fascinating here, as I, as I was reading, uh, commentators talked about the fact that, that God uses this supernatural method of 
horses, the chariot on fire with the horses to separate Elijah from Elisha and, and in effect blind Elisha from, from the actual taking up of Elijah up into heaven. But he did see the chariots. He did see Elijah as he's being separated. He did see these supernatural things occurring. And so thus he does meet that requirement that Elijah set forth. But it is actually the whirlwind that takes Elijah up into heaven. Can you imagine what an awesome sight that must have been? I mean, think about when you would go through your neighborhood and you would, you know, knock on the doors of the kids who had the coolest toys or the coolest things. I'd be knocking on God's door every single day. Hey, can I see the chariots of fire again? Hey, can, I, can you attach the horses to the chariot? I mean, I, it's, it is just... I don't know, I guess that you guys aren't as blown away as I was. But this is amazing, guys. The chariots, and there's fire, and there's horses with fire, and there's a whirlwind that takes Elijah. I mean, the supernatural, awesome power of God in utter display here. And I make a big deal about it because I don't, I don't want to just read through it like, yeah, it's just another day. No, it was not just another day. So like Enoch, God is taken uh, Elijah, unlike Enoch and Moses, Elijah's end is non-traditional. I like that. Look at Elijah's response. And this is why I think that there was a father-son relationship. We're told, verses 9 through 12, that he saw it. Therefore, meeting Elijah's request, he cried out. But what does he cry out? He cries out, my father, my father. By the way, who else cries out in the New Testament? Eli, Eli. Lama Sabak, right? Jesus, my father, my father. And when Jesus cries out, it, it is a cry. And there is, there is deep internal joy because of the long-term effects. But there is temporary agony. And I think this is the case here in this cry. My father, my father. We can make no mistake here. The departure was intensely personal for Elijah. There's real agony in his cry. And he tears his clothes. Because he's mourning. That's, that's the reaction of someone who was in mourning in the Old Testament. He tears his clothes off. But this is what I think Elijah was trying to spare him from. But nevertheless, he's there and he does receive that double portion of anointing. This concludes the first part of our lesson and allows us to transition smoothly into the second part, which is Elisha's promotion. 13 through 25, verses 13 through 25. And the first point here occurs by way of two miracles. I Elijah's promotion is marked by two miracles. Read these miracles with me, and, and I'll warn you here, we're going to read out of order, okay? So we're going to read verses 13 through 15, and then we're going to jump to 19 through 22. Okay, beginning in verse 13, he also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell on him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took uh, the mantle of Elijah and fell on from him. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? 
when he uh, when he had also struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. And the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, now the situation of this city is pleasant. Sorry, this is uh, verse 19. The situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. He went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. They shall not be from, there shall not be from their death or unfruitfulness any longer. Verse 22, So the waters have been purified to this day according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Look at that first miracle. Let's deal with the first miracle uh, to begin. It occurs at the Jordan River. And I think it, it had to. It really did have to happen there at the Jordan River. And we're told that uh, Elijah takes up Elijah's mantle. As, as he is whisked away, Elijah, he, he leaves his, his mantle. And so Elisha picks that mantle up. But make no mistake here, this is just symbolic in nature there's no actual power in the mantle just like there's no actual power in any other handkerchief or mantle that people say they bless and send out to people there's there's no actual power in this mantle this is just symbolism here and it is symbolizing the passing of of the ministry the prophetic ministry from one prophet to the next but notice, we're told that with this mantle, with this very mantle, he strikes the waters like Elijah had done before him. He, now Elisha, strikes those same waters. And what does he discover? He discovers an awesome truth that Elijah might be gone, but the Lord remains. Because it is the Lord that parts the waters of the Jordan River for Elisha. What are the results of this first miracle? We're told in, in verse 12, the spirit, uh, excuse me, in verse verses uh, 13 through 15, we're told that the spirit of Elijah rested on Elisha. We're also told that the, that the prophets of the school of prophets bowed themselves before Elisha. Elisha's ministry is supernaturally confirmed and publicly accepted. What about the second miracle? Well, there's some differences. It occurs in a city. We're told that the water is bad. It's unpure. Literally, the Hebrew there is that it's, it's unproductive. The, 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 the thought of a couple losing a child. It's a very strong language that is used there. It's not drinkable. It, it causes death, not growth. And it's interesting the way that uh, Elisha handles this. You, you wouldn't think that to fix such a problem, you'd, you'd pollute the water with salt, right? You ever drink water with salt? Yeah. I had a friend who thought he was hilarious. Told me he put sugar in the water. I don't know why I drank it because sugar in the water is horrible to begin with, but he didn't put sugar in the water. He put salt in the water, and it was even worse. It, it, it's not good. You wouldn't throw salt 
in water to purify it. But, but salt in Scripture is a purifying element. And, and again, it, it's symbolic here that, that this counterintuitive method of miraculously healing the water cannot be attributed to an earthly prophet. It can only be attributed to a sovereign God. Much is made of the significance of the salt. What did it mean? Why did he do it that way? How come? What was going? There's so much talked about. And I think we missed the point of this miracle. It's great to wonder and to think about the significance and to to question and, and hey, what do you think about the symbolism? But don't miss the greater point. That's not important. What's important is what comes after he throws the salt in the water which is where we're told that the Lord purified the water. The focus isn't on the salt. The focus is on the Lord and his power. And the fact that once again, he's confirming Elisha's prophetic ministry. That's the point of this second miracle. That should be our main takeaway. Those two miracles give way to a doubting request in verses 16 through 18. Read these verses with me. They said to him, behold, now there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and search for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast on cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent, therefore, 50 men, and they searched three days but did not find him. They returned to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? This is one of these parts of Scripture that I absolutely love because it confirms that my sense of humor has been given to me by my God. If, if you doubt that God has a sense of humor, it is undoubtable undeniable in this part of scripture they just saw what elisha saw they maybe didn't see exactly but they they saw something they saw the whirlwind they saw the miracles they know they have bowed before elisha and here they are saying hey we should send a search party to look for elijah That's hilarious, man. And he says, no, don't don't go. Don't go. So that's their plea. And it's interesting. Their plea is very similar to someone else in Scripture. I, I was I was struck as I'm reading this. John the Baptist in prison. And what does he do? He, he, he's preached the way of the Lord. He has acknowledged Jesus. And when he is in prison, what does he do? He sends his disciples to say to Jesus, hey, are you the one? Because I'm in prison right now, and I'm not exactly, right? This is what's going on. They're like, could it be that he was, like, maybe just God tossed him like a football, and he's on, like, on some mountain somewhere? There's a doubt. It, it, it's rooted. Their, their plea is rooted in, in doubt, miracles notwithstanding. And, and we're told also that their plea leads to their pressure. They, they persist and persist until... Elisha finally relents and says, okay, go. And I love this. I love this because 
their their pressure leads to the realization and after three days they come back and they say yeah he's not he's not good and in the godliest of ways elijah gives them an i told you so yeah. right a and i told you so and, and he says did i not tell you don't go but it, it, it's such a such a wonderful piece of scripture where you see god's sovereignty playing out and and even even though they're prophets they they demonstrate their 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 doubting nature and it it happens to all of us but but understand this is why we have god's word to fall back on god's word they had the miracles we have god's word this is why we have god's word for those moments of doubt we fall back on god's word so finally, that leads to our uh, third, excuse me, and final subpoint, which is a deadly lesson, verses 23 through 25. Then he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. By the way, I, I really didn't want to read this for all of you bald heads. I had to. I hope you understand. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. He went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. I'll be quick, I promise, but I want you to notice the culprits first. Okay? We're told that they're young lads. But young lads, understand, I, I, the word there in Hebrew is young men, to be sure, youths, uh, of, of marriage age, to give you an idea. We're not talking five, six. We're talking 14, 15, 16, and beyond. Okay? What's the mocking? You know, as mocking goes, as trash talking goes, it's not the most creative, right? Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. But it was disrespectful. It was disrespectful. Some commentators say that it could be referring to a specific marking that Elisha had to identify himself as a prophet. Others say, hey, he may have just been bald. There's no, there's no great certainty here. But what there is great certainty about is that this remark is incredibly disrespectful. And it's not disrespectful to Elisha primarily. It's disrespectful to God primarily. That's his prophet. That's his ministry. And these young lads failed to understand that. What's the curse? Well, the curse occurs in the name of the Lord. And understand, please, this is not a selfish vengeful curse so many people get tripped up here how could this be this is a capricious god how can he act like this unbelievable and i i i always it's hard it's hard when we get to pieces of scripture like this and everybody's in an uprise how is that just how is that fair how is that possible we get our feathers ruffled over a couple of bears killing 42 lads because they disrespected God. 
And I'm talking necessarily we here in this room, we here in this world, a lot might have an issue with this portion of scripture. We have no issue whatsoever with the millions and millions of babies that are slaughtered on a yearly basis. We don't ever bring that up. We don't ever bring up the injustices that occur on that side. We don't ever talk about those things. It's just the injustice of God. God is not unjust here. There's a very important lesson to be learned, and it is this. When it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the things of the Lord, we should be respectful. We shouldn't play with the things of God. We shouldn't mock a holy God. By the way, some of us have gone overboard at this time, and we're thinking, how can I pray like that against some of my enemies? Well, you can't. No bear is going to come out and attack. But in this case, understand that this happens to underscore for everybody in Israel the fact that God is real, that Elisha is his prophet, and that we are to take God's things serious. That concludes our lesson. I hope that you see God's provision as he provides one prophet for another and God's faithfulness to his word as he institutes Elijah, Elisha excuse me, for Elijah. Pray with me as we conclude. Father, we're so thankful for your word. Lord, we're, we're, we're thankful for the, the stories. We're, we're thankful for the unedited nature of your word. You see, human flaws, and your mercy. Lord, as we uh, go through this week, I pray that we would be reminded of that. As, as we will exhibit flaws undoubtedly this week, I pray that we would be covered by your mercy. As we will exhibit doubt, Lord, I pray that we would be enveloped by your grace. That we would be reminded of this lesson and your word in general, and we'd be strengthened in it. Help us to, to remember that you are faithful and that you are our provider. I pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name.